you. I appreciate the prayers that uh, you offered up on our behalf as we uh, took a group to Israel. Probably the safest time we've ever experienced in Israel. Uh, it's always been safe, but this time was even more so, and we had a delightful trip and no uh, injuries uh, that, no injuries at all. Well, I take that back, one minor one, uh, but nothing that has uh, laid us up. Uh, we all went through periods of of not feeling well, maybe with colds and things, but uh, we're here and praise the Lord for that. Pastor Doug is sick this morning, and uh, so I know he would appreciate your prayers. I'll just uh, mention that briefly, and uh, hopefully he'll be back tonight uh, for the evening session. But thank you for your prayers, and it is fantastic to be back with you. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come this morning with anticipation because you were here and your word is alive. And we pray that because of your presence and the power of your word, that our lives would literally be transformed. Speak to us as only you can. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. There's an ancient creed that is said by many different Christians, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, Catholics, it is the Apostles' Creed that gives to us the core of the teaching of the Twelve. I would like for us to say this together this morning. It's something that we don't often do, uh, but I think many of you are familiar with it. So let's simply read it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and I don't think I have that part in there. Excuse me for that. Let me read this part to you before we get to the rest. He descended into hell. Uh, the third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into seven and heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Now, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting, amen. How many of you remember saying that in church on a regular basis? Okay, many of you do. It's really a great creed giving to us the essence. Now, I want to return back to kind of that first section uh, that it tells us that Jesus, of course, is God's son. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and then this little phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, the creed is centered around the Trinity. You've noticed that, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The only other person that is mentioned is the Virgin Mary, and for good reason, because God chose her to be the blessed one to bring Christ into the world. And then you've got a Roman governor by the name of Pilate, Pilate who gets headlines in this amazing creed from the fourth century. It almost seems somewhat out of place. And were it not for this creed, this man would have been forgotten by history. But he is immortalized in this brief phrase of the ancient creed that says Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. We have a tendency sometimes to think that he's 
the only bad guy in the story, but he's only one of many. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to turn to Mark's Gospel, Mark's Gospel chapter 15. We noticed last week in Mark 14, the Jewish trial. And the Jewish trial of Jesus had three phases to it. First, Annas. Jesus was taken to Annas, the former high priest, and then to Caiaphas, the present high priest, who was actually a son-in-law of Annas. And that's where Mark focuses on the Jewish trial. But then there was a third and final phase that we're actually going to see this morning. But then when you get into Mark 15, you have the Roman trial, which also had three phases to it. Jesus before Pilate, Jesus before Herod, and then Jesus returning back to Pilate again. So if this is a trial, let's think of it that way. The prosecution, the judge, and the defendant. First of all, the prosecution comes from the Jewish leaders. We read in verse 15, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the sole whole Sanhedrin. By the way, this is a very unusual confederacy because these guys normally don't get along. But it's amazing how you can be united if you're brought together by one overarching purpose. And they have one. They need to get rid of Jesus. You see, these are the power brokers of the Jewish nation, and Jesus is a threat to their control. They're addicts to power, and addicts will hate and even kill so that they can feed their addiction and maintain control. So that's exactly what the Jewish leaders are going to do. They come together and they reach a decision. Now this is an early morning decision. This is the third phase of the Jewish trial, actually. You see, they came to a decision in the middle of the night. You can read about it in Mark 14, verse 64. They all condemned him. That is, everyone who was present. I'm not sure the whole Sanhedrin was present. I think there were some good guys, much like the Pharisee Nicodemus, who stood on the side of Jesus. But everyone there present condemned him. That was the decision made in the middle of the night, but that was an illegitimate decision. To make it legal and lawful, they had to make the decision in the morning. So they met to ratify their decision. They all condemned him, but now they're ratifying that decision in the morning light to make it legal. They knew that they didn't have the power to execute Christ, but they came to the decision to condemn Christ. And that's what they're doing in verse 1 of chapter 15. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. By the way, they had to rush to get to Pilate because Roman governors normally held court early in the morning so that they could quickly cease for the day and morph into something called organized leisure. The Roman baths are famous, and the games and enjoyments of a Roman governor are many. And so he wanted to get his work over so that he could enjoy the rest of the day. And so they had to hurry to him early in the morning. 
And notice the words, they handed him over. This is found in verse 1, and this is going to be repeated in verse 15. They handed him over. It's a very interesting Greek word that means to give up, to surrender, or even to betray. It's the word that's used for for Judas when he betrays Christ. It's the word that's used for these Jewish leaders when they surrender Christ to the Roman soldiers. It's going to be the word that's used in verse 15 when Pilate hands him over to the soldiers. Jesus is constantly given up, betrayed, and surrendered. Now, what is the charge? That's an interesting question. What is the charge they're going to bring? If you study the Jewish trial, the charge was blasphemy, remember? It was the high priest who said to Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And he said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, you, why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to death. But blasphemy doesn't play in a Roman court. They could care less about a Jewish feeling that Jesus has somehow taken a position that is not theologically correct. So they have to do something with the charge of blasphemy, and what they do is they change it into the charge of treason. Only a capital crime is going to result in execution. And Luke gives us a little more insight when in Luke 23, more details to the charge, he says, this is what they said to Pilate. We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, which is not true, by the way. That's a trumped up charge. And he claims to be Christ, the Messiah. That is true. But, but let us translate that for you, Romans. Messiah means king. Get it? He claims to be a king. A rival to Herod and Caesar. And that, my friend, is treason. And so the charge changes from blasphemy into treason Because that's the only way they hope they can truly get Christ killed. So, the prosecutors, what say you about Jesus Christ? And they would say, he is a blasphemer. And he claims to be king when he is not. He is worthy of death. The second person in this trial is the judge. By the way, actually the judge and jury. He's the guy by the name of Pilate, the Roman prefect, the Roman governor. Pilate, a very interesting character. And he's going to come up with a verdict, by the way, and his verdict is going to be innocent. And that is very important because the Romans prided themselves on justice and taking in the facts. Pilate's an interesting dude. He's 
The historian Josephus and Philo uh, tell us that Pilate was uh, an egomaniac. <laughs> he was a very inept leader. He was hated by the Jews, and he hated them back. He didn't like being where he was. This is the outpost, the furthest outpost of the Roman Empire. Now, he lived in the beautiful city of Caesarea on the sea, probably in one of Herod's empty palaces. So he had it great, but it was his custom and duty every once in a while to go to Jerusalem, especially when large crowds would come into the city and uh, there was the possibility of turmoil. So he would take the 10th legion of the Roman army that often was uh, settled in Caesarea and they would travel all the way to Jerusalem to keep the peace. There he would either live in Herod's palace or the Fort Antonio, which was adjacent to the Jewish temple, built there so that they could watch all the proceedings of the Jews. He was cruel, malicious, and he had no sensitivity whatsoever to the Jewish religious beliefs. In fact, he was constantly offending them. For instance, once he had all of his soldiers ride into the city of Jerusalem with flags that had an image of Caesar on it, which, of course, was against uh, the Ten Commandments. It was an idol being brought into the city and into the temple area. And there was a riot that took place. And Rome said to Pilate, how stupid can you be? You've got to understand that you've got to fit into this culture. You're controlling them, yes, but don't offend them without reason. <laughs> Another time, Pilate robbed the temple treasury so that he could build a Roman aqueduct. Jews didn't like that so much either. And Rome kept saying, that's two strikes. One more, and you may be out on your ear. And so... It's almost like Pilate was on probation. He could not allow an insurrection to take place. In fact, there was an uprising not too uh, long before this situation, and he has men in prison just to prove that Rome put it down, and he couldn't endure another one. So when the religious leaders came to Pilate that day, he thought this is just another stupid religious controversy that always afflicts the Jews and it was beneath him to deal with it, but he had to deal with it and deal with it quickly so he could get to his Roman bath. But he had to do it well, or else he may lose his position. And so when the religious leaders came up to him, they said, by the way, this guy claims to be a king, and that's treason. And that's why we read in verse 2, the questioning begins with, Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. That's the issue of the moment. We have to know. Is there insurrection here? Is there treason here? And I'll get back to this in a minute, but Jesus says, Yes, it is as you say. The chief priests accused him of many things, verse 3. We've read some of those. But Pilate was really amazed that Jesus didn't say anything. Jesus made no reply. And so Pilate is kind of stuck in a situation where when he hears Christ and he investigates the situation, he can't find any reason to kill him. 
Now, I have to think that Pilate wants to stick it to these Jewish religious leaders. And so, frankly, he wants to do whatever they don't want him to do. So if he can come up with some way to see that Jesus is innocent, it's only going to upset them, and he would love to see that. Don't think that Pilate's a good guy. By the way, this portion of Scripture puts the best possible light on Pilate you could ever come up with. And some people, like the Egyptian Coptic church, have made Pilate to be a saint. He was anything but that. He was an opportunist. But if he had an opportunity to make these Jewish leaders uncomfortable, he'd be glad to do it. And so he honestly didn't see any crime that was worthy of death. By the way, it's very interesting in this investigation. Of course, the Jews were concerned about his claims to be Messiah. Pilate's concerned about his claims to be a king. And after examining them both, he is innocent. In fact, if you put all of the gospel records together, you're going to see that Pilate clearly declares that Jesus is innocent. In the preliminary hearing, he says, I find no fault in him. Sends him to Herod, Herod sends him back, I find no fault in him, and Pilate agrees. He says to the crowd, why do you want to kill him? There is no crime that he has committed. And in Mark's gospel, that's in verse 14. What crime has he done? But instead of giving an answer, they simply yell all the louder. Pilate's wife has a dream. Don't, do, don't have anything to do with this innocent man. And then Pilate washes his hands, Matthew tells us, to declare, I want you to know the blood of this innocent man is not on me. I'm innocent. Five distinct different times, Pilate declares he is without sin. That is, without crime and must not be punished. So that's the verdict. See it clearly. And it marks true with all that Scripture says. Jesus did no sin. No guile was ever found in his mouth. He who knew no sin became sin for us. The centurion looked at him and said, Surely this is the Son of God. The thief said, We've done wrong. This man has done nothing amiss. The verdict throughout the passion story is that Christ is innocent. But Pilate has a problem. He's a politician. It's not true with all politicians, thankfully. But it is with many. And they vacillate, depending on which way the wind blows. And so, notice verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. It's interesting when you put a verse from Luke and this verse together. Luke 23 says, wanting to release Jesus. Mark 15 says, wanting to satisfy the crowd, and you can't do both at the same time. You and I vacillate between two opinions, wanting to serve God and wanting to please ourselves. And you can't do both at the same time. So while Pilate is vacillating between these two passions, he's innocent, I want to let him go. But the crowd yells at about this time, and John gives us the exact words. If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. And Pilate says, wow, one more strike and I'm gone. 
I can't afford to lose my position. So wanting to satisfy the crowd, he releases Barabbas to them. The Bible tells us that Pilate did everything he could to avoid this. First of all, he said the guy is innocent. He sent him to Herod. That didn't work. And then he came up with the idea of a custom. And by the way, there was no record of this in ancient literature anywhere else except in the four Gospels. But it's found here in the four Gospels. And it's very possible that Pilate might have even come up with this custom and tradition himself. During the Passover, someone can be released. A prisoner can be released. And so Pilate's thinking, sanity is going to prevail. I'll bring up one of the worst guys I can and compare him with Jesus. And let the crowd choose, Jesus or a guy named Barabbas. By the way, that name Barabbas is very interesting. The the word B-A-R, the prefix bar, means son of. Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Bar means son of. What does Abba mean? Father. Barabbas has the name son of the father. And so you have two people standing before uh, the crowd. One is named the son of the father and the other is the son of the father. Which one are you going to choose? It's very possible that Barabbas might have come from a very good family, thus given this something of a liturgical name. But he was an insurrectionist. He was a murderer. Some believe he might have been part of a group uh, of zealots that were kind of like the, the mafia. They were the dagger bearers. He was in prison because he'd killed someone. But I'm convinced the crowd that was there that day at the trial was different than the crowd on Palm Sunday that said, Hosanna. Well, there might have been some of the same people, but this was a crowd built by the Jewish religious leaders. This was a crowd that knew the custom that maybe someone could be released. This was a crowd that might have looked at Barabbas as a patriot, willing to kill the enemies of Israel. He was a hero. Not a villain. And so Pilate, unsuspecting Pilate, when he brought the two before the crowd, was convinced they would choose Jesus, but they didn't. Give us Barabbas. Give us the guy who takes life, not the one who gives life. Give us the guy who's guilty of a crime, not the guy who's innocent. And that's what happens. And in this famous painting, you see Pilate offering Jesus to them. There was one more thing that Pilate would try that he hoped somehow would satisfy their anger. And that was to have Jesus flogged. Verse 15. He had Jesus flogged. This is the Roman scourging, flagellation. It was a horrible practice. This happened before someone was crucified. And the, uh, the instrument that was used had long strips of leather, multiple strips of leather, and at the end, something sharp like bone or glass or stone. You say, well, they could only whip someone 39 times. That was Jewish law, not Roman law. There was no limit. 
to the lashings. Historians tell us that people sometimes often lost consciousness. Some died before they got to crucifixion, but these guys were professional killers. They'd bring someone up to the point of death, but not kill them. And sometimes their internal organs were showing because of this flagellation. Pilate says, I'll flog him, and maybe that will satisfy him. And so they brought Jesus before the crowd after he had been whipped. And this painting doesn't do it justice. And they were still not satisfied. Kill him. Crucify him was the cry. And so Pilate's verdict was that Jesus was innocent, but the crowd won the day. And so the judge handed him over, look at verse 15, handed him over to be crucified. You say, that is so weak. Yeah, Pilate was weak. But we often reject Jesus Christ as well, even though we know he's God the King and he's innocent. But there's one final statement that we have to focus on, and this comes from the defendant, Jesus himself, who makes the statement in verse 2. Are you the king? And he says, yes, I am. When you put Mark 14 and Mark 15 together, Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is king. And he makes those claims so clearly. If you were to turn to John's gospel, you would get a little further detail as to what Jesus actually said, that is, all the words that were spoken. He said, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. You don't need to be threatened by me. The Roman Empire has need, fear me, need not fear me because my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. But my kingdom is not from here. You rightly say that I am a king, Jesus said to Pilate. And for this cause I came into the world, so that I should bear witness to the truth. My weapon is not military. My weapon is spiritual. It's truth. I've come to bear witness to the truth. I am the king. And then... He remains silent. Pilate continues to ask him, aren't you going to answer all these accusations? Verse 5, but Jesus made no reply. And Pilate was amazed at his silence. Someone has said, well-timed silence hath more eloquence than speech. Silence is one of the hardest, hardest arguments to refute. It's more powerful and more penetrating a language than any words we could ever form. And Pilate, who was used to loud protests, didn't quite know how to handle the silence of virtue. Jesus had declared what he needed to declare, and there was no sense talking anymore because no one would believe him. But the word was out. He is king. And yet even in the midst of all of this revealed truth, Pilate still handed him over to the soldiers. Now this is after he had been abused at the Jewish trial. Remember, they spat on him. 
they blindfolded him and hit him and said, prophesy. They were mocking him because he claimed to be Messiah. Now the Romans are going to do something very similar. In fact, there's a game that Roman soldiers used to play called Kings. And this game has been found on the floor, etched on the floor uh, of Roman barracks all throughout the empire. And just last week, a week ago, I was standing on the very pavement in what appears to be the Fort Antonio, where most likely Jesus went through the flogging and went through the mockery. And there etched on the floor is the remains of the game called Kings, where they would take a pawn and roll the dice and slowly add a crown and a coat and a scepter. But they didn't have a pawn for this game. They had dice, but they had a real person. And the scriptures tell us that they mocked him. They lampooned him. They put on a purple robe, twisted a crown of thorns, and they called, Hail to the king of the Jews. This was the easiest part of the whole ordeal. Humanly speaking, Jesus could barely stand. And they mocked him as king. I don't know what's worse. To mock him as king and think that he isn't. Or to say that he is king and act as though he isn't. To proclaim him as your savior and lord and not follow him. By the way, that phrase handed over. We mentioned it earlier on. But if you follow it through throughout the story... You paint a picture like this. Judas handed him over to the religious leaders. The religious leaders handed him over to Pilate. Pilate handed him over to the soldiers to be crucified. But did you know the same word is used when Jesus speaks of the fact that he gave himself up voluntarily? Like in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. He loved me so much, he gave himself up for me. It's the same word. He surrendered. He handed himself over on my behalf. And get this. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And with the help of wicked men, he was put to death by being crucified on a cross. So who handed Jesus Christ up? Judas, yes. Religious leaders, yes. Pilate, yes. Soldiers, yes. God, yes. So while he suffered under wicked hands, he came to die voluntarily for your sin and mine. Now the purpose of the whole story is this. Jesus is innocent, but the innocent one doesn't go free. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be redeemed forever. The story of the gospel is no more powerful in any other place than it is in the Roman trial where Jesus is declared innocent but dies. So, if he is Messiah, trust him. And if he is king, obey him. Let's pray. 
Father, as we walk through this trial in a rather cursory fashion, we are again impressed with the fact that Jesus suffered much, even though he was innocent. And yet the suffering was voluntary. He was not forced. He was not the victim of circumstance. He was not the pawn of imperial Rome. He was a willing servant who gave his life so that we could be forgiven. Heavenly Father, let us acknowledge with our hearts Jesus as Lord and Savior, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, but rose again the third day and now sits at the hand of the Mighty One on high until he comes on the clouds of heaven for us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You're dismissed.